Thank you. Amen. Turn in your Bibles as we continue on to the great book of Ezra. Ezra is uh, a number of books in. It's uh, somewhere around 10 books in or so. It's on the left-hand side of your uh, Bible, so to speak. And we're going through a series on this great book. And this book is about the rebuilding of the temple. The temple has been destroyed, and this is about the rebuilding of the temple. But it's more than that. It's about the rebuilding of God's people. This is what God always does. As he builds and puts projects in people's hearts and puts it on people's hearts, he actually also rebuilds us. That's one thing we cannot miss as we even talk about the importance of the mission of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in our city. That not only does Jesus involve us with the mission, but he does stuff in us while we do mission or as we go so to speak. This is not to be missed, that we don't simply ask you to participate in the mission of Jesus Christ because of what you can do for the city, but because of what you will receive from Jesus Christ as you do mission to the city. We don't want you to miss out on that. We want you to participate in that. And those who serve faithfully each week know that this is actually the way God grows us. That we grow most when we're pushed the most. And today we're going to learn a little bit about opposition and what happens in opposition. Now I know what you think initially because you and I are products of this culture. And this culture always asks the question, and it's a victim question, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, A, we're assuming we're good. But B, we say because simply this. Bad things happen to good people because a good God says Bad things create an opportunity to find out what's really in your heart. You know this from personal experience, that there is no such thing as growth without some sort of resistance or opposition, right? Like, I would, I would look like a complete idiot if I said, I am going to build my muscles up by waving my arms like this a bunch of times. Like, that's, that's Trev. Okay, first of all, you look like an idiot when you do that, so don't ever do that again, please. Second of all, you need to lift weights to build your muscles. What are weights? They're resistance. They're opposition. You're, telling, you're putting your muscles in opposition so that you can build. Any athlete will tell you you'll never grow as an athlete, you'll never move forward as an athlete until you begin to experience resistance. I was a runner once, many, many moons ago, and they told me in books that you don't really start learning how to become a long-distance runner until you reach the end of your energy level, and then you begin to build some of your energy, your long-distance ability. In other words, you don't really begin to learn how to run. You don't begin to grow until you're at the end of whatever muscle power you have, or you feel you have. This is exactly what God does. He allows for these things to happen in people's lives, in his own people's lives, not because he doesn't like them, but because he loves them. Because he wants to build them up into faithful people who trust him, 
who have the muscle reflex of people who believe and trust in a sovereign God. And there's a couple things we're going to see today that opposition surfaces many things in our lives. Last week, we actually talked in chapter 4 uh, simply about this, what opposition kind of looked like and, and, and that we could expect it. This week, I want to talk about what opposition really surfaces in our lives. The first thing it surfaces is it surfaces our priorities. Opposition always surfaces our priorities. Spiritual opposition or opposition from a spiritual perspective also surfaces who we believe is in control every time. Lastly, the text shows us that opposition surfaces a God who's not simply in control of those who believe in his name, but of everyone. The most difficult thing of all to believe and understand. And so let's go through these things together. What I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and read through the text and explain it as I go so you can get a sense of the story. If you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and one of our uh, ushers would love to bring you a Bible? I can't, I don't know what page it's on in those Bibles, but we're in chapter 5. And so let me read this out for you. Now the prophets... Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Some are asking who was Iddo, and I had a comment this week. Wasn't he the guy who invented that sushi restaurant? No, not the same guy. That's Edo. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Hit pause here and do a little bit of explaining. What is happening so far is, is essentially the temple and the city that the temple resides in for Jews, Jerusalem, is in demolition mode. All we have are kind of broken stones, except for the previous story has explained a little bit that the work has started, but it really, it was stunted. Some opposition came up and people quit. This happens all the time, right? Just People just decided, hey, now's maybe not the time for this. And so there's two prophets, two preachers. I love this. People rebuild because they listen to a sermon. I love this part. And I want to explain this whole business of what Haggai and Zechariah said. I did this last week. I don't want it to distract from our text. But I want to use it to explain the message of the sermon because it has everything to do with why it might spur people on with a sermon. They prophesied, they preached. Here's what they said. Haggai chapter 1 verses 26 in the second year of Darius the king, and we'll find out that's exactly, that's exactly our time frame, so these two books kind of overlap in that message. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. We've heard those names before, right? I just read them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Seems like what we are seeing in the text. We're not ready yet. We're too small. 
our church hasn't gotten off the ground yet. That's the kinds of things they were saying. We don't have enough chairs. We don't really have a good coffee system yet with stamps on our cups and paper cups. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? What Haggai is doing here is being sarcastic to the people. He's saying, okay, okay, I guess it's not time to rebuild the church, right? But I guess it's time to rebuild your own houses, eh? That's exactly what he says. Oh, I see. You don't have time to build God's church. You're too busy building your own house. Remember, these people, this is a legitimate thing to rebuild their house. They're coming back from the land after about 70 years. They're trying to reestablish themselves. They're looking for apartments. This is not a big ask. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build, that ho- build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, we got to pay attention to this. God doesn't always give us the whys. Why? Because of my house that lied in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. That was the message. End of sermon. I think in the text, in the original Hebrew, there is a mic drop, actually. What's Haggai saying? Hey, you guys are working really hard and it's not going anywhere. Have you ever considered why? You work hard and you put your money in your pockets and it's not there at the end of the day. Do you have any idea why? You, you work hard, you, you sow seed, you put it in the ground and it's not being fruitful. Why? You work hard at your life to find a job. You work hard to find a a home. You put money in the bank, and there's not enough at the end of the month. Do you know why? Because your priorities are wrong, God's saying. You're pouring all this time into making yourselves comfortable. While my house, my temple, my glory, the eminence of the good news of who God is lies dormant. It's not talking exclusively about a building here. It's talking about opportunity. And immediately there's a, there's a parallel to the church that I want to bring in at another time. Or maybe I'll do it now, just now that you're here. But essentially this is the message that Ezra writes down. He doesn't give it. He, it's, it's actually, he's recounting this story. And what he's saying is, when Haggai preached that message, that's what sparked people's attention. That's where some people said, hey, wait a second. You know, my job is going nowhere, actually, and I can't figure it out. Maybe it's because I'm putting my effort into the wrong thing. This is exactly what's been happening in, all, in our culture. If you want to know, it's why we, we need to plant a lot of churches. We need to have a lot of opportunities for people to hear the gospel. I think that this city is empty of gospel-preaching churches. 
It's filled full of churches that are trying to make people comfortable, but it's not filled with enough churches that proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that will establish eternal life. We're on a mission to do this, and I believe we as the church in some ways have been far, we as the Christians individualize this. This is not someone else, this is us. We have been way too concerned about our comfort level. Well, there's not enough churches. Why do you think we're asked? We're, we're, we're wanting you to join Vin and Laura's church in City Hill. We just want more, that's why. We want to see more churches go forward. Is this easy for us? No, it's not easy for us. We don't have enough money to do this. We don't have enough people to do this. It's difficult to come here week after week and do what we're doing. So why are we doing it? Because we want to spend our energy into something that God promised that he would bless, not in something that he didn't promise he would bless. Did you know that God does not promise your comfort? He does not promise that by becoming one of his followers, you have an easier life. Actually, he promises it's going to get more difficult. And yet some of us are so addicted to our own comfort that we simply aren't even paying attention, and yet we're scratching our heads. Why is my bank account empty? Why am I so unfulfilled in life? Why does my job never bring the fulfillment that I'd like? Why don't I have enough friends? Why doesn't my church do more for me? That's our mode. I know this because I'm one of them. You see, this opposition actually surfaces this priority issue, and it's still a priority issue for us is that the good news of Jesus Christ is that he offers a relationship to the God of the universe through his death and resurrection. And by belief in him, by trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus, we have everything that we need to finish out our life, and we have everything that we receive through Jesus because of that. Eternal life. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's why it's so important. That this was earned by Jesus Christ as a gift given to us that we may receive through what? Good works. No. Faith. By trusting in Jesus. It's the great loophole of the gospel. So what Ezra is trying to write down is simply this. He's referring to, to this message of Haggai. Why are you spending so much time rebuilding your own life instead of pouring your time into the kingdom of God that lasts? It's a question for all of us. It's a question I can't answer. Only you can. Let's continue on. It's the second point. At the same time, Tatnay, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Sheth, Shethar, Bosnai, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. If you've read the previous passage, this sounds like Groundhog Day. 
I mean, we've, we've been over this, actually. Last text, last week, chapter 4, same kind of people, same kind of province, same kind of questions. Why are you rebuilding? Who gave you the authority to do this? You ever have that? Who gave you the authority to park here? Who gave you the authority to stand there? It's a simple question. It's about 20 years later, though, than the previous text. But it still feels strangely like Groundhog Day, spiritual Groundhog Day. Where they're like, I I think we've been over this. Although there's some unique things that happen this time around that are totally different. The writer recognizes that the eye of God, the hand of God is upon them, and they simply say, okay, we've got proper documentation, but we're not going to stop the work while you look for the documentation. The burden of proof is not on us, it's on you. I love this. Very articulate, very kind, but very articulate and say, hey, hey, we have every right to be here. What what does the text continue? This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report to which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Peace. I think they went like that. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. So you would see this going on. Huge stones that you would have to roll. Timber is laid in the walls. This is, timber was basically a form of rebar in the old days. They put timber in the, in the, the rock walls to provide it some stability as they built it up. Not only that, but timber is clearly instructed by the, the king of Israel who built the first temple in the first place. So they're recreating the temple as it's supposed to be. They're in full compliance and obedience to God, number one. Secondly, the work is continuing. They're halfway up. Timber isn't the first thing you put in. It's halfway up. So they're halfway through this project. And so that's what is reported. Hey, these guys are well on their way to completing this temple. We want to know if this is authorized. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? We also asked them for their names, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. They're just being due diligence, doing due diligence here. And this was their reply to us, we are the servants of God of heaven and earth. I love this. What is that translation? We don't work for you. (laughs) Isn't that great? Uh, who gave you the authorization to be here? Sorry, you're not our boss. I love, this happens in my family all the time, right? One of the kids will say something to the other kids. And, hey, you don't get to say that. You're not my mom. You're not my dad. I was like, I'm your dad, and I'm saying the same thing. But that's the response, right? Hey, we, we don't, you're not my boss. I love that. Love that attitude. This is one of the ways that you respond to opposition. And you don't need to do this in a crass, crude way, but you say, look it, I don't serve you. You're not my ultimate boss here. So I'm going to keep working. God says, yes, I'm going to do it. You say, no, doesn't matter, I don't work for you. 
And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. They wouldn't have said anything because they wouldn't have known who Solomon was. They're, they're Persian. They don't really care about Israel. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Why would he explain it this way in the letter? Well, it's pretty simple. If you serve the God of heaven and earth, why the heck is the temple in ruins? If he's such a great God, why is there such a big problem with a broken down temple? Wouldn't the most powerful God in the universe be capable of keeping the temple together? Right? This is still a question that people have. Hey, if God is so great, why is the church filled with such rotten people? Why are the people such a big problem in churches? If Jesus is so real, here's what's interesting. They don't respond by saying, hey, get off our back. They say, our fathers angered the God of heaven. That's a very kind statement toward Nebuchadnezzar. That's not Babylon who Nebuchadnezzar was part of. That's not his perspective. His perspective is, I came, I dominated, I wiped out, I took all the best for myself. Israel's perspective is, yeah, he didn't really do it. We angered God with our disobedience, and so God let this powerful king of the universe come in. Be the equivalent of saying, yeah, Trump didn't really do it. It was Canada who really just let, you know, Trump come in and kind of take us. Oh, that Trump joke doesn't go over very well anymore. And the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king, that, that was the king at the time, took out of the temple of Babylon. They were delivered to the one whose name was Shezbazar. We don't really know what has happened to him, but apparently he was there at the beginning of the rebuilding project of the people coming back whom he had made governor, and he said to them, take the vessels, go put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Shezbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. It's interesting that perspective, because the, the work actually stopped for quite a while, but they basically considered it like, hey, when the work started, it's just kind of been always in the process, Right? It's like the website you go to, like, we're working on this website. No, you're not. This is a dormant website. You just put, like, to be continued or to be filled in later. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether Cyrus, a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. This is Israel essentially saying to the Persian authorities, hey, we don't work for you, but you know what? Be my guest. Go search. Go search. Go find out. So what's interesting about this whole issue, this whole paragraph, this whole story, and why I retell it, is that opposition has this unique way of surfacing who they really think is in control. That's what happens. And that's still a question for us today. 
that when opposition comes to us as a church, when opposition comes to you as an individual, even if you may not be a believer, when opposition comes, it will surface who you think is in control. If you are in control, it will surface you. Right? This is what our culture will tell us. They'll say, no, 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 just dig deep within yourself. You can get past this. But this isn't what happens to these people. What happens? They say, hey, we don't work for you. You're not in control of our lives. The God of heaven and earth is. You didn't orchestrate this Babylonian king who came and destroyed everything God did. That's, that's, that's how they see it. And for us, when opposition comes upon us, it will surface who is in control. And do you want to know why this is hard for us? Because we're millennials and we're living in a millennial generation. And we don't love authority, do we? We don't like it at all. We fight against it at most, I say millennial generation because it's so easy to point to people younger than myself and go, oh yeah, millennials, they just do this. And I was like, I, we're a part of this. Our whole generation is like this. The culture around us is like this, no matter how young or how old we are. We use words like entitled. We use words like, it's, it's about me. I, I, I saw, I think it was McLean's magazine. And the front cover, I can't quite quote it perfectly, but it was raising kids in this generation who are vegan, clean eating, I thought those were the same things before I researched it. Entitled and self-righteous. That's what it means to raise children in this culture right now. Right? Even McLean's magazine is ready to say, yeah, we're raising self-righteous. What's, why are we raising self-righteous children in our culture? I'll tell you why. Is because we tell children from a very young age, it's about you. You're the center of the universe. You work hard. Don't worry about what other people think. It's about you. Don't worry about anyone informing you on your gender. Now parents are terrified to tell their children what kind of gender they are. What? How did we get here? I'll tell you how we got here. When we allowed the idea that we are in control to permeate everything that we do. That's how we got here. This is as big a problem in the church and in Christians as anywhere else. Very few of us choose our church based upon what we can offer. If I'm honest, the majority of us are here because of what we receive, not because of what we can give. Very few of us have the approach, man, I'm going to find the most broken church and then I'm going to go to it and help it become a great church and a great bride of Jesus Christ. Anyone come here for that reason? I mean, one or two. I think, yeah, Spencer's like, yeah, I came here. This place was terrible. It's just not our mentality though, is it? We come for what we receive. Now, should you receive equipping in, in a church? Yes. 
Should you receive community? Absolutely. But we have to tell everyone in our family, including ourselves, that this family's not simply for me. I'm here to provide. I'm here to contribute. It used to be cool to say, ask not what you can do, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Those were cool words. Now that's heresy. Now the only thing that goes through our head is, don't ask what you can do for God, but ask what God can do for you. It's not even on the radar. See, the good news of the gospel is that it's free, but it comes at a tremendous cost. It's completely free. You do not earn your way into God's family through what you do. That's the miracle of what we would call the gospel, the good news. That God is not more pleased with you because you show up on Sunday morning and therefore he gives you salvation. He gives you salvation freely on the basis of his terms. Not on what we do for him. That's what many religions will tell us is what can we do to get close to God. Christianity says you can't do anything that can get you closer to God than you already are because God comes to you through Jesus Christ. But when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we don't simply give the spiritual part of our life. We're giving everything. It's life for life. It's our life for Jesus' life. You want everything that Jesus offers, you willingly give up all of your life. I'm using the word all here. This is the hardest thing for us. And sometimes we, we say, what does it mean to be a Christian? You say, well, we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we kind of say those words, uh, and they'll seem like really Christianese kind of words. Here's what that means. Lord means superior. Savior means better. When we're saying we give our hearts to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're saying you're our superior now, and you're better than anything that we've tried to worship. That's what that means. And when we do this, when we give our lives over to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he begins to put us on a different mission from the one that we're previously on. And the reality is, no matter how much I love you as a church, I would be unloving if I didn't challenge you with this. Some of you have not given your life to Jesus as your Lord. You want him to save you, but you want him to do it on your terms. You don't want him to do it on his terms. This is what the, those in the text understand. You're not our boss, Persia. We don't work for you. We have a different Lord, and that is the God of heaven and earth, and he directed us to build the, rebuild the temple. And so until he tells us not to anymore, we're going to keep building. That's what it means. In Acts chapter, Acts chapter 4, there's a good example of this. A couple of the first apostles, 
Apostles being the sent ones by Jesus Christ after he had risen from the dead. And they were speaking about how good he was. And they were trying to say, hey, Jews, they were speaking specifically to Jews. And they were like, hey, you guys, just so you know, the guy you just executed, that's the linchpin to this all. He's the one that everything is going to grow from. It's on him that all this foundation is being laid. That's why they said, this Jesus is the excuse me, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you think they got some opposition when they said that? To a Jewish nation that had just executed him because of what he had said, because he claimed to be the cornerstone? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, ultimately hipsters, they were astonished. They recognized that they'd been with Jesus. And what happened? So what should we do with these guys? Let's toss them. You know what Peter and John said? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we had seen and heard. What were they saying? We don't work for you guys. You're not boss. If it appears like we're going against you, hey, that's on you. But for us, we're not going to sit under your authority. We sit under the authority of the Most High God in the name of Jesus Christ. This is always the question for us, friends, still today. But some of us, even yet, no matter how long we've come to this church, still have not given that authority of Lord over to Jesus Christ. His grace is free, but it will come at the cost of you giving your life over to him on his terms. And lastly, what does this opposition do? It surfaces who's in control of the world. I chose to take on chapter 6 because the story doesn't really end at 5. And so I'm going to deal with the 13 to uh, 22 next week. But this is what the chapter 6 says. Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia. They followed through in it. And in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. Sounds strangely like chapter 1. If you want to flip over there, you'll find a very similar decree. They don't think it's actually the same account. They think it's, it's two different accounts of the same thing. That's where scholars have arrived at because there's some specific um, measurements that are found in this version. But what's amazing about this that would be so easy to miss unless really smart people studied this for us is do you know where Ekbatana is? Nobody, right? Nobody will answer. I'm not worried that someone will answer that rhetorical question. That's in his vacation home. 
the Persian king was on his way to vacation and he discovered something that was lying on the table, log home living, so to speak, sitting in his summer cabin. The decree that said, oh yeah, 20 years ago, the first king of Persia made a decree that basically said, we've allowed the Jews to go back to their home. We've allowed them to rebuild their life, their city, their temple, and to reestablish the worship of the almighty God and creator of the universe. I guess we should go back and tell the guys that we found proof that Israel was right. I know what you're thinking. Total coincidence, hey? You think that's coincidence? I don't know, you have more faith than I do. I don't think it's coincidence for one second. I think this is God going, man, you guys think I'm just in control of those who love me? You're not quite getting it yet. I'm in control of everybody. You, you think I'm just orchestrating events that are designed for your church? Oh, no, 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 no. You're thinking way too small. I'm controlling the country. I, I'm not in charge of just those who meet in church buildings or in the Kirby Center. I'm actually the mayor of Calgary. I'm the governor of Alberta. I'm the prime minister of Canada. That's what he's saying. We cannot forget this, that as opposition comes, one of the things God wants to do is to blow our minds about how big he really is. That he doesn't simply want us to think about, how am I going to make it to work tomorrow? Although that is actually important. He wants to acknowledge that he's much larger than simply you. Because what he's doing isn't exclusively about me and you, it's about him and about his glory. I read this morning in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he wanted to get glory out of Pharaoh. And I realized this morning, God could get glory for himself. Glory simply means weight, means ascribe worth to. It's heaviness, importance. God can get glory any way that he wants. He chooses it to do, do it through people who love him. He can do it through people who hate him. I mean, there are a lot of people in culture, in society, who have gotten worth. Nebuchadnezzar got worth. He got glory for himself, but did it in a brutal way. God chooses to get glory for himself through his people, primarily. But let's not forget, he will have his glory. This shows us a God who's not to be messed with. This shows us a God who the king of the, the most powerful civic leader known at the time, there was a decree on a notepad in a summer house so that God could continue to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. You don't think our sovereign God's in control of the details Ezra 6 tells us a completely different story. Romans chapter 13 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except God. You hear that? 
let every person be subject to the small bosses because there is a major boss and his name is God. And though, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Now this is not saying like, do whatever the authorities tell you. This is trying to establish that the authorities in our lives, the government in our lives, the structures in our lives are not something that thwarts God's plan. You don't like the premier of Alberta? Bible saying, God put him there or her. You don't like the mayor of our city? God put her there or him. You don't like the prime minister? Wait a second. God put him there. You don't have to agree with him, but don't think for a second that this is an accident. For God to do something unique. Now, south of the border, this is the great fear, isn't it? Everyone's terrified. What happens if someone gets in that God doesn't really authorize? Romans says, you don't have to worry. Whoever's in power, God's actually put them there. No matter what. No matter what. You see, this is what, this kind of opposition surfaces. It surfaces this large, big God. And this is the part of the gospel that often doesn't get spoken about. Usually when we speak about the gospel, we say these simple things. We say things like, God loves you so much that he wants to have a relationship with you. So turn to him. Now that's true. It's just missing some major pieces. Here's the other pieces. God loved you so much that he wants to have a relationship with you that he sent Jesus Christ to pay the incredible cost to buy you back out of slavery from whatever sin that you are addicted to or are serving. And if you turn your life over to God through Jesus Christ, you must exchange your life for his. Which means that you no longer run your life. You're no longer your own boss. You're no longer the center of your destiny. You and I actually serve another boss. And he's our authority. And if he tells you what to watch and what not to watch, you get to watch that and you don't get to watch that. That's what happens. And if he tells you this is what I think the parameters are for your gender and your sexuality, then we say, okay, God, we take you at your word. And if we say this is, this is the parameters for sex, then that's the parameters for sex. And if this is the parameters for our money and our time and our calendars, then that's your decision, God. You're in charge of this. Now say it this way. Any kids here? Some of us need to submit our genitals to God because we're treating them like we want to, with whomever we want to, with however we want to. And they're not created for doing whatever we want to with them. They're created so that we can glorify God with them. Yes, I'm saying that. Some of you are using your money unwisely 
for your own purposes, however you want. You're just like the people in Haggai. And you're saying, I give a little bit to the church and the rest I just do whatever I want with. No, no, God doesn't want 10% of your money. He wants all of your money. We don't get to decide these things when we turn our lives over to the authority of Jesus Christ. Some of us, we take our calendar and we keep it for ourselves. Sure, we can give all those other things, but my time, no, that's for me. So if my social life gets infringed upon, my personal time gets infringed on, nuh-uh, it's my time. I deserve it. Not if you've given your life to Jesus, it isn't. If you've given your life to Jesus, your calendar is an open book. This is Jesus, you get to decide what I do. You get to decide how I spend my time. You get to decide who shows up, uninvited or not. You get to decide if someone drops by and they need help and I'm too tired and I can't do it. That's what you say. Some of us come forward and we take communion and say, Jesus, be my Savior. Today, I actually want you to come forward and say, Jesus, be my Lord. You get to decide my health. You get to decide my relationships. You get to decide how much money I make, how much I don't make, what I do with it. You get to decide what I do with my sex life. You get to decide what I do with everything, Jesus. I used to preach this and it was called surrender. We don't preach it very much anymore because we have authority issues in our culture. And this is why I believe God is giving us these kinds of words and reminding us of Ezra. Saying, we don't get to decide these things. Jesus does. That's what it means to turn your life over to Jesus. Now, if you think for a second this is an easy word, it's not. This is why when Jesus preached, repent of your sins and turn to me, some said, no way. Why? Because he essentially says, you're going that way, and I'm going this way. To follow me, you can't keep going that way. You've got to go this way. Now, friends, when we turn our lives over to Jesus, there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He does not ask us to exchange our life for his because it's worse for us. He says it's better for us, ultimately. But you have to make that decision. And I have to make that decision. And so, ladies, if you come and play, and if you're brand new to Urban Grace, hey, welcome to the book of Ezra. But even if you're new, we would still invite you to partake if you believe these things. These symbols here represent some very important things to us as Christians. Here's what they represent. The bread represents the broken body. You see those crackers? 
how they're all broken up. That symbolizes the broken life of Jesus Christ, who didn't just try to live a good life, he actually broke his own body. He purchased that opportunity for exchange through his death and resurrection, which is symbolized by the blood. And we would encourage you, please, do not take this lightly. We welcome anyone who does believe it to take it with boldness. But we don't welcome you to take it lightly. There is a soberness that sometimes needs to come over us to say, there are places in my life that I have not yet submitted, but today I submit. Today I surrender. This is what opposition in our life will do. It will surface these things. And so come and take as the ladies play.